As we move in this lecture to continue to probe the relation of general and special, natural and supernatural revelation, it's time for us to turn to a specific biblical text that helps us understand the integration of those two modes of revelation. So as we get our circles back on the board and we remember the two lines represent creation, special creation, and uh, providence in the form of covenant, we have insisted that these are distinct, inseparable, and simultaneous features of God's revelation to Adam in the Garden of Eden. And as we turn to this biblical text that helps us uh, in this discussion, there is a structural strand in place that explains biblically why general and special revelation, the revelation given in creation and the revelation given in an act of special providence must be distinct and separable and simultaneous. That unifying strand, for lack of a better term, and it is a good one, is eschatology. Eschatology. The theologian who most profoundly expressed the way eschatology unites these diverse strands of natural and supernatural revelation was not first Cornelius Van Til, but Gerhardus Voss, Van Til's favorite professor while at Old Princeton. And I want to probe the significance of what Voss flagged as the key text, the locus classicus, for understanding the Pauline eschatology of nature and, by extension, covenant of works. That is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 44b through 45, which I have up here on the board. 1 Corinthians 15, 44b through 45. Now, because I want to say this by word of preface. I have given at Reform Forum extensive lectures on 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to presuppose some of that material and press forward given the concerns of this course. And so if at this point you would like to hear one of those lectures, feel free to pause and look into that. But the text reads, if there is a natural body, then there is a spiritual body. For, the for it is written, Genesis 2-7, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit, capital S. In the context of the passage, Paul's argument is that the contrast between the natural and the spiritual bodies of verses 42 through 44a is concluded, and he introduces a new comparison and contrast. In 44b, Paul widens his view to say if there is a natural body, then there is a spiritual body by adducing proof from Genesis 2-7 that the first man, Adam, became a living being. Genesis 2-7, of course, is what Paul is invoking. God formed Adam from the dust of the earth, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, 
and in that work of special creation, endowed him with original knowledge, righteousness, holiness, and entered into a bond of natural religious fellowship that expressed itself from Adam's side in worship and obedience. And the internal logic of verses 44b to 45 is this, that the mode of existence that characterized the first Adam as created by God carries within it the concreated potential to advance to glory, to advance beyond the protological in Eden to the eschatological in heavenly Sabbath rest. That's the logic of this if-then statement. If there is a natural body, then there is a spiritual body. For the first Adam was made a living being, the last Adam by resurrection, life-giving spirit. Gerhardus Voss, in the Pauline Eschatology, which I think by all accounts is his magnum opus, comments on this construction in what I consider to be the richest footnote in the Reformed tradition, or at least very close. He says this, summarizing the theology of this text. The apostle was intent on showing that in the plan of God from the outset, provision was made for a higher kind of body. The abnormal body of sin and the eschatological body are not so logically correlated that the one can be postulated from the other, but the world of creation and the world to come are thus correlated, the one pointing forward to the other. If I were to use a diagram to get this uh, point, Voss is saying something like this, that the earthly, natural, and first, the earthly, the natural, the first, by virtue of creation is ordered to the heavenly, the spiritual, and the last. 1 Corinthians 15, 47, Adam was the man of earth, the first man. Christ is the second man of heaven. And this is true, listen, of Adam in his embodied form of existence. So this is nothing close to any form of Gnosticism that's polarizing an evil earth and an evil body and setting it over against a good, immaterial realm. That's not what's being brought into view here. Let me render Voss's language in dogmatic terms that might be easier to grasp. By from the outset, Voss means that provision for a higher existence in glory, the estate of innocency is ordered to the estate of glory for Adam as as man, body, and soul, from the outset means that this provision, listen, was given in the very work of special creation. The 
provision is concreated. And by provision, Voss means that there was created in Adam a potential to reach glory. Concreated in Adam is not only knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, but created in him, given in his very existence, is the potential for the advancement of his estate. By higher kind of body, Voss means pace all forms of Gnosticism and Manichaeanism. Voss means the body in the estate of innocency, united to the soul, would be transformed into the body, and by extension the soul, in the estate of glory. So in summary, Voss is saying that this text in 1 Corinthians 15, it helps us understand, look, the eschatology of the image endowment that God gave to Adam. And so now Voss is helping us recognize that the creation of Adam itself means that there is an inherent correlation between the probationary estate of innocency and the consummate estate of glory. The natural body of creation carries within it the concreated potential of the body in the estate of glory. And this is true given the act of creational image endowment. There's an inbuilt potential to attain glory. Let me put it in a way that those of you familiar with Voss will instantly grasp. There is an intrinsic natural eschatology to the image. And that eschatology is not a con-natural end. It is the end of glory itself in the presence of God entering into heavenly Sabbath rest. Richard Gaffin, uh, one of the most uh, well-known and penetrating students of Voss's theology in the 20th and now into the 21st century, reinforces Voss's point as follows. In This is in his Resurrection and Redemption, page 82. And I think this is probably Gaffin's most penetrating work, all things said. He says this, the correlation of protology, first Adam, and eschatology, last Adam, does not necessitate attributing the notions that creation is in need of redemption or that the works of creation and redemption are identical. These are plainly excluded by what he says in these verses and elsewhere. What this passage does teach is that the eschatological prospect held out to Adam, and which he failed to obtain, is realized and receives its specific character de facto by the work of the last Adam. The following three propositions define the limits of further dogmatic reflection on these verses. One, eschatology is a postulate of protology. That is this diagram right here. Eschatology is a postulate built in, concreated to the nature of the protological, the creational. Two, soteriology is not a postulate of protology. Three, soteriology is eschatology. In a different course, I would explain all three of those propositions and develop them. In this course, I'll talk only about one. 
Gaffin argues here there was an eschatological prospect held out to Adam. That prospect inheres in the created order. This does not mean that creation stands in need of grace, but it means that Adam, as the created image of God, carries within him, by virtue of creation, the prospect of advancing his estate, of moving from the protological order of Eden to the eschatological order of Sabbath rest. Second, what Adam failed to actualize through covenantal obedience has been de facto actualized in the work of the last Adam. In the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ as the last Adam, we find the realization of the prospect held out to Adam as the image of God and in covenant with God. The passive potential inherent to the image of God that Jesus assumed to himself in the hypostatic union has been brought to glory through humiliation and exaltation. Boy, we differ from Thomas on this one. He and the Roman Catholics say that humanity was deified at the instant of incarnation. We, A, deny deification and say that that humanity was glorified not in the time point of incarnation, but at the time point of resurrection and ascension. There's another difference between the deeper Catholic, traditional, and deeper Protestant conception. But Gaffin is saying that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that prospect of life inherent in the image of God, that prospect of eschatological life inherent in the image of God, has reached its consummation in Jesus Christ as the firstborn of a resurrection harvest. Now, this is probably becoming clear to you, but here's the question. How does this help us relate the natural and special revelation of God? How does the eschatological potential inherent in Adam help us understand the necessity of a distinct, inseparable, and simultaneous act of special providence in covenant that promises him life and shows him the path to achieve it? Well, we can say that the construction, the reality that allows for this movement of distinct and inseparable modes of revelation correlated together, the reality that binds them together is the eschatological purpose of God in creation and in covenant. The creational image of God and the voluntary act of condescension mutually presuppose one another, mutually inform one another, and mutually condition one another. Image without covenant is blind. Covenant without image is empty. Neither functions independently of the other, but both are enveloped by what? By an eschatological purpose of God as creator. Now, just along these lines, I've talked a little bit about the work of uh, Voss 
talked a little bit about the work of Gaffin. I want to round this discussion out and talk to you a little bit about the work of Meredith Klein. Klein himself, I would consider, along with Gaffin, to be the heirs of Voss and Van Til in the 20th and into the 21st century. Uh, the insights of Gaffin in terms of New Testament theology and its application to dogmatic theology, groundbreaking in numbers of ways. Klein's insights in Old Testament theology, groundbreaking in other ways. Both are heirs of Voss and deeply devoted to the extension of Van Til's theology. In fact, um, Klein, whose favorite professor was Van Til, dedicated to Van Til the structure of biblical authority. And Klein has some useful comments that get us behind Genesis 2-7 and behind Paul's interpretation in 1 Corinthians 15 and get us back to Genesis 1-2. through And I want to share that with you. He says in Kingdom Prologue, that it is not the case, page 17, it is not the case that the covenant was superimposed on a temporally or logically prior non-covenantal human state. The covenantal character of the original kingdom order as a whole, and man's status in particular, was given along with existence itself. Now this I take to be precisely the same point Van Til is making when it's read in context. But he makes a very strong claim that we have to understand and unpack. He speaks of the covenantal character of man's status given with created existence itself. Now that seems to rule out the category of special revelation, resting in an act of special providence. It's the direction Lee Irons pursued in his essay, Redefining Merit. In that essay, he collapses the work of covenant, the reality of covenant, into the work of creation. But Klein, in the very next sentence, offers clarification with regard to the sense in which there is a covenantal character to Adam's creation. And this is critical to appreciate. Listen to what Klein says. He says, For the creator of Genesis 1 gave name and existence simultaneously in his creative fiat. Klein is thinking especially of Genesis 1, 26-28. He says, His creative fiat names were covenantal fiat names of divine commitment, especially so that the fiat name that called man into being in the divine image. So let me be clear here, and we'll continue to clarify. Klein is not saying anything like the entire covenant of works was concreated in Adam. He's not saying all of creation, without qualification, conveyed the covenant of works. He does not 
fold the covenant into the work of special creation and deny special providence or specially revealed stipulations beyond creation. He's rather speaking here on page 17 of Kingdom Prologue very narrowly of oath commitments from the divine side. The oath commitments carry the prospect of advancing the image of God through perfect obedience. But Klein by no means says that the covenant of works in its entirety was given instantly to Adam in the work of creation. He's rather making the highly nuanced point that the words that precede Adam's special creation in Genesis 1.26 carry an oath commitment from the divine side and form an eschatological purpose for Adam. And that purpose, as far as I can see, three pages later, three pages later, the integrating conception that Klein proposes is that Genesis 1:26, in light of 2 through 31, is a quote, covenant-making process that has a sabbatical telos. Covenant-making process. There's a process to God making a covenant with Adam as the image of God. And that process has twin features, creational and providential, concreated and specially revealed. In other words, Klein like Van Til is wanting to say that the natural is instantly folded into or assimilated into create the covenantal purpose of God, though remaining distinct from it. The covenant-making process includes a special work of creation, image of God, and a special act of providence, specially revealed terms. Regarding the specially revealed terms of the covenant of works associated with the probation, Klein says this, For by doing what was signified by the name of the judgment tree, who named it? God. Where did he name it? in special revelation in Genesis 2, 16 through 17. By doing what was signified by the name of the judgment tree, man would advance the glory of his judicial likeness to the Lord of the heavenly council. Thus, this tree would, like the tree of life, be instrumental in man's maturing participation in the Imago Dei. You see, the creative fiat and image endowment comes with an oath commitment to advance Adam's estate. But Klein is absolutely clear that the specially revealed terms associated with the probation tree, as given in special revelation in Genesis 2, 15 through 17, that is the substance of the covenant. So to follow Voss, Gaffin, to follow Van Til, the prospect of advancement is concreated. It's given in the work of creation itself. The eschatological capacity to attain Sabbath rest was given to Adam in the creational image endowment. And in that sense, his very existence was an illustration and exhibition of God's oath commitment to advance him to Sabbath rest. He was created unto glory, Klein's point. 
But the promise of advancement and the specially revealed terms of advancement are disclosed by the special revelation annexed to the probation tree in Genesis 2, 15 through 17. Let me put it this way. Klein is insistent on this point. Adam could not read the terms of the covenant off of creation in and of itself. He could not look to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil independent of God's super added special revelation and know that it was the probation tree. He could not advance his estate by natural revelation and concreated knowledge. He could advance his state only by obedience to the supernatural revelation stipulated in the positive terms of the covenant of life or the covenant of works or the covenant of creation. Life brings into view telos, works, the modus operandi, creation prior to the fall. The promise of life was given in a special act of providence. Klein makes this point explicit. Kingdom Prologue, page 107. He says, according to the terms stipulated by the Creator, it would be on the ground of man's faithful completion of the work of probation that he would be entitled to enter the Sabbath rest. If Adam obediently performed the assignment signified by the probation tree, he would receive as a matter of pure and simple justice the reward symbolized by the tree of life. That is, successful probation would be meritorious. Klein could not be clearer that the ground for advancing the estate given in creation is faithful completion of the probationary terms stipulated by the Creator, assigned by the Creator. These terms are assigned to Adam by special revelation. These terms pertain to God's interpretation, God's revelation regarding the meaning, the significance of the probation tree and the tree of life. Knowledge of the probation tree was not concreated. Knowledge of the probation tree could not be read off of nature. Knowledge of the probation tree was not given to Adam in the work of special creation. He could not look within the book of conscience or without simply to the book of nature and know the probation command. Rather, the knowledge of his assignment, the knowledge of his work, came by way of special revelation. Adam had to submit to the word of his covenant Lord in the specially revealed terms of the covenant. That is Van Til's point. That is Klein's point. It's Voss's point. The natural world from the outset had to be interpreted by a specifically or specially revealed word from God in the form of covenant. Klein locates ex pacto merit, in the covenantal justice that reveals the character of God. Adam's reward for obedience is not an arbitrary assignment of value, as the voluntarist tradition claims. Because Klein and Bioth Consign says that Adam, as he was created, was a claimless creature of the dust. Point of Turretin, Westminster Confession 1, Bavink, Voss, and Van Til. Adam owed God everything. God owed Adam nothing. Adam, as a creature, is claimless before God. Yet, if he obeyed the revealed, 
positive verbal revelation of God in the covenant of works, he could merit advancement of estate because the terms of the covenant stipulate the ex pacto justice of God. Just as Van Til says, all of reality must be interpreted in light of special revelation. Klein says Adam's merit must be measured in terms of special revelation, conformity to the specially revealed terms of the covenant. Ex pacto merit flows from the special providential terms of the covenant that reveal God's justice even as those terms flow from his freedom. The natural religious fellowship inherent to the image of God is advanced and matured to consummation by obedience to the terms of the covenant and the terms of the covenant, ex pacto, stipulate Adam's work as meritorious, according to the justice of God, not an arbitrary assignment of value. The beatitude of obedient Adam's existence and the existence of his posterity would hinge not on natural obedience, but on obedience to God's specially revealed covenant. And in this way, Klein adds, I think, something to this eschatological point. He's saying that from his outset as created, God's design and oath commitment to Adam was advancement beyond probation to glory. And then the specially revealed terms of the covenant that stipulate the meaning of the probation tree are the means to the end of attaining that beatitude. Now to integrate all this together, And to help see, once again, how eschatology unites these diverse strands of natural and special revelation, we can observe the following. The unifying theological strand in the work of special creation, image endowment, and in the act of special providence, covenantal condescension, is eschatology. There is an eschatological prospect concreated in Adam as the image of God. There is an eschatological promise given to him in the specially revealed terms of the covenant. That is Voss's point, Gaffin's point, and Klein's point. So the image of God oriented toward advancement is meaningless without the positive terms of the covenant. Image of God and the covenant of works are distinct, but inseparable and simultaneous, but together eschatological. They are alike in that they are concerned in distinct ways to advance Adam's estate. Therefore, if we ask the question, why is general and special revelation given to Adam distinctly and inseparably and at the same time? The answer is, because each is concerned distinctly and conjointly with his eschatological beatitude. Image supplies the prospect for the advancement. Covenant pledges the promise for such advancement. The underlying unifying feature of general and special revelation, the philosophy of history that Van Tilla advanced, owes its unity to eschatology in the Vossian and Kleinian sense of the term. 
Put in a way that complements this insight, religious fellowship with God integrates the two modes of revelation. This is Voss's deeper Protestant conception. Voss, in his Reformed Dogmatics, Volume 2, 13 through 15, observed the image and original righteousness are to be identified, and this means that life in communion with God belongs to the nature of man and can nowhere be excluded. For the deeper Protestant conception, Adam was wholly inclined toward God in righteousness and holiness and knowledge before the fall. He says, according to our conception, our entire nature should not be free from God at any point. The nature of man must be worshipped from the beginning to the end. According to the deeper Protestant conception, the image does not exist only in correspondence with God, but in being disposed toward God, in original, concreated, natural knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And what does such an endowment require to reach its fruition, to reach its eschatological fullness? Covenantal condescension on the part of God. As Voss points out in his Doctrine of the Covenant, nothing could satisfy Adam's soul but God himself as Adam's blessedness and reward, and God grants to Adam the desire of his heart in an act of voluntary condescension. The natural religious fellowship expressing itself in worship found the means for consummation in the covenant and in covenantal condescension. There's therefore, you see, an intrinsically organic relation between the fellowship inherent in creation and the fellowship advanced by covenant. The unifying feature in both nature and in covenant is fellowship with God that expresses itself in worship and obedience. So the two forms of revelation not only subserve eschatology, but they serve the singular end of the worship of the living and true God, a worship that finds its consummation through covenantal obedience according to God's revealed will. So eschatology and worship, those features are the primitive features that help us see the necessity of this unity of distinct, inseparable, simultaneous modes of revelation confronting Adam from the very outset of his existence. Let me put it broadly. The image of God in its totality is religious worship of God. That is what the image consists in. That's what all of its diverse features conspire toward, knowing God, loving God, serving God, worshiping God as righteous and holy, according to his revealed will, both in this age and in the age to come. The creation and the providential are thus together the covenantal, are thus together the means to the eschatological end of perfected communion with God. Now, in light of these observations, as we've looked at Van Til, 
we can recognize that he affirms the autothean persons, the self-contained Trinitarian persons. It is those persons without change who are one God, who condescend and reveal the path to glory to Adam. Natural religious fellowship, concreated knowledge, righteousness, and holiness is met instantly with the special revelatory terms of the covenant of works. And those features conspire to eschatological beatitude. Those converge toward the fullness of that relationship being brought to consummation through covenantal obedience. This is a view that is distinctive to the Reformed tradition. This is our distinctive theology of nature, our distinctive theology of covenant, our distinctive eschatology found in Voss as the father of biblical theology, Van Til's favorite professor. And it's this philosophy of history that we saw in nature and scripture. Van Til applies to Greek, medieval, enlightenment, and modern forms of thought whether philosophical or theological. And the beauty of this philosophy of history is that it sets forth the fullness of the Reformed faith when it comes to the revelation of the triune God. And by its very nature, integrates and shows the unity of all diverse forms that oppose it, from the Greek to the medieval to the Enlightenment to the modern. It is this deeper Protestant conception, this Reformed philosophy of history that drives and regulates Van Til's positive presentation of the covenantal revelation of God to image-bearing Adam that then underlies the whole of the unfolding history of special revelation, which we'll study in courses that come. But first things first, It is on this foundation and this one alone that we will build the deeper Protestant conception in its integrity, in its profundity, and its utility for the church of Jesus Christ.